Well, we are making progress, brothers and sisters. We are coming to the end of the first half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Remember, the the letter splits in the middle. Chapters 1 through 3 are orthodoxy, that is, right understanding, truths that we need to believe because they are true and they are true of God. And then the second half of the letter, chapters 4 through 6, are orthopraxy, practice, having believed this, how then should we live? And Paul's going to tell us that. So we've been front-loaded in chapters 1 through 3 with a lot of, a lot of mystery revealed about Christ and about his church and the plan of God for us. And then the, the back end is going to come along and guide us and, and direct us in how we should live then knowing these things. Uh, so that's a wonderful thing to move on to. So Paul caps off these first three chapters with a prayer, which is what we're looking today in the second half of Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, which is a little interesting. I mean, since Paul is in prison, as he writes, you might think he had enough burdens to pray for himself without praying for the church all the way over in Ephesus. Many of those people he does not, he does not know. And yet he, he, in these verses, gathers them all together, gathers them up in his prayer as he pleads with God on their behalf. He's in prison for having preached the gospel to them on their behalf, and so it's no surprise that in prison he's now praying for them on their behalf. There's a consistency there, isn't there, in gospel ministry. Well, let me do this. Let's read verses 14 to 21, and then we'll get started. This is the word of God. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. When we think about the content of many of our prayers, they may seem... And I don't want to be ungracious here, so I'll just use the word pitiful. (laughs) The content of our prayers seem pitiful in comparison to the context, the content of of Paul's prayer here. That's why why we don't want to miss this opportunity to learn to pray Paul's prayer for power. This prayer not only reveals Paul's request for the church, but it also reveals God's purpose for the church as well. Because Paul's praying along the lines of God's intended purpose for the church, for the people that he's praying for, for us. Remember, this letter originally circulated in in Ephesus and then the towns around there and then made its way through the centuries and has circulated to us. There's a sense in which Paul's praying for us if we were to extrapolate that. And so if you would take your sermon outline and follow along, you'll see this theme, believers in the church must pray for power, love, and maturity in the faith so that, joined together 
we would make known the manifold wisdom of God to those in the heavenly places, and that we would proclaim the peace of Christ to those on earth, and all to the praise of his glory. You know, that's a little more wordy sermon theme than usual. And I think this is kind of a wordy sermon this morning, too. Because it's, this prayer is the summary of all the many words in chapters 1 through 3. And the glorious concepts about God within. And so when you start talking about one of them, they just build like a snowball. Uh, because it begins saying, praise God, let us bless God, blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's a lot of stuff. And so there's just a lot here this morning for us to try to bridle in and bring together. And so we, we look first, as, as Paul prays, at his address, at his petitions, and then at the, the outcome. I mean, that's the, that's the whole big meat of the prayer. And he addresses the prayer with reverence towards God the Father in verses 14 and 15. He says, for this reason... Wow, here we go again. This is what happened last week, right? He began talking for this reason. Now now after his digression, he's back uh, to praying, and he says, for this reason, and he's pointing to, now we know, the mystery revealed, which we can summarize really in a couple of verses. We can summarize it with chapter 2, verse 22. In Christ, you Gentiles are also being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. This Gentiles together, this Gentiles are 100% in the church just as the Jews were. Or chapter 3, verse 6, which we looked at last week. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This Gentile inclusion into the church is on Paul's mind as he's praying. Paul desires for the Gentiles to fully enter into their God-given privileges in Christ. And so he's praying to that end. He's praying based on, really, chapters 1 through 3, if we wanted to be broad about it. And, and what does he do? Well, he, he kneels in reverence to pray. The customary posture in prayer among the Jews was, was to stand, perhaps with hands uplifted. To kneel would have marked deep solemnity or a serious urgency to Paul's prayer. It's the same way with us. Sometimes we just close our eyes and pray where we sit. At home, or in a restaurant, or in the car, or even this morning in our worship gathering. There are times when we are so profoundly burdened for ourselves or for others that we feel almost forced by the weight of that burden to our knees. And it becomes a posture of a more earnest, more desperate, more dependent prayer. And who does Paul pray to? The Father. The Father. Which which is kind of interesting. You know, Paul started his letter in chapter 1, verse 3 by calling us to praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's, It's a little more formal sounding, isn't it? Here, he's not thinking so much of God's relation to Christ as he is of God's relation to his redeemed people. We call him Father. The God who loves his children. Paul is praying like the the ones he wrote about in chapter 3, verse 12, as one who has boldness and confident access to God by faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. When you're a child, you can go to dad. And that's how Paul's praying. And it's interesting, this every family talk, isn't it? Every family 
is not creation talk. You might read this and go, oh, he's, he's gone broad on us. He's gone into creation talk. He's not referring to all the creation, both in heaven and on earth. No, this is still redemption talk. This is redemption talk, referring to his redeemed family, who both in heaven and on earth. Together, Jew and Gentile, all of us in Christ have been made into one big happy family with God as our Father. Now, you might ask, well, just how delineated does the term every suggest? Every family, well, it's kind of hard to know. Perhaps it simply means Jew and Gentile. I mean, that's been the theme throughout the letter so far. Perhaps it means nations, all of the nations. Perhaps it means believers from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That would be a biblical boundary. The language, regardless, remains uniting language. That there are many separate families and that there are many families separated by death, heaven and earth, some in heaven, some on earth, is in contrast to the fact that they are united together under one Father. That's the image that Paul's giving us. Everyone in this family gets its name from their one Father. That's a believing group. That's a believing family. And Paul prays with boldness. Paul believes that God is able to grant his requests. He's asking for these things because he absolutely believes that God can and will grant these requests according to the riches of his glory. According to the riches of his glory. Paul thinks the riches of God's glory are the source for the answers to these prayers, these petitions, and so he makes these requests. Let's look at them in verses, uh, well, look at the first one anyway, in verses 16 to 19. Paul's praying that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's really three requests just crammed into those few Verses. Paul makes three requests, each one building on the previous one. So they're, they're all leading to one main outcome. And Paul is confident that God is able to grant these requests out of the riches of his glory. And the three petitions are for power, for comprehension, and for fullness. Power, comprehension, and fullness. We can see them in these verses. The first request is a request for power in verse 16. Midway through, that God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is a prayer for believers, for the family who has its name from God our Father, for the church. So Paul's not praying about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that comes at conversion. This prayer is a sanctifying prayer. It's for more growth and greater sanctification. Believers in the church need to grow in strength in order to carry out the plan of God for his church that Paul has revealed. Believers in the church need to grow in strength in order to carry out the plan of God for his church that Paul has revealed. He's revealed a lot. It's going to take a lot of strength. So rather than praying that we would all go to the gym for power or that we would all buy power in a bottle, my goodness, I don't know if you ever watch TV. Is not every other commercial some type of power for your body in a bottle? 
Or, or, or if you're just scrolling, uh, in, in whatever app you use, there's an app to give you power in your life. It's amazing. It's unbelievable. Paul prays rather that we would be strengthened by the very power of God that raised his son from the dead. That power. In chapter 2, verse 19, Paul prayed that we would know this power. He called it God's great might that he worked when he raised Christ from the dead. And he said that uh, is the same immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. That is, the same resurrection power that made us spiritually alive in Christ back in chapter 2. That power is still at work in us. The resurrection power of Christ is still at work, is still in operation in us. So is that the power you're experiencing daily in your Christian life? Or are you experiencing a lesser strength? A feeble power? I would suggest that if you're not experiencing the immeasurable greatness of God's power in your daily Christian walk, it's because you are not asking for it. Or you're asking amiss. This power comes from the riches of God's glory. And you cannot reach in to the riches of God's glory and take what you want for your use. Although that's often how we pray for power. And when you do that, your hand comes back empty. This power of God is mediated by the Spirit of God, so you have to ask God for it in prayer. It's the Spirit of God who takes from the riches of God's glory the resurrection power of God and places it in your inner being. It's a spiritual provision of spiritual power for spiritual strengthening deep down in the core of your soul where your mind and will and affections operate in your heart of hearts. And what does Paul ask for this power to bring about? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. See, Christ himself is the power we are we need for the strength we need. That's not just spiritual talk. It's an actual spiritual reality. Notice two things that Paul is asking for God to grant. First, that Jesus himself, through the Holy Spirit, would dwell in your inner person where your mind and your will and your affections operate. We need Christ, our sin-atoning Savior, and our resurrected Redeemer to have functional centrality in our conscious, real-time living. We need Him to actually function there. And He does that if we will ask in prayer. Second, the ongoing presence of Christ comes through ongoing faith. Before we blow by that word faith, because we see it so often, we're pretty familiar with it, let's consider the alternatives. This power does not come by works. Not even religious works. Not because you read your Bible and attend Sunday morning worship gatherings. This strengthening does not come by merit. Not even religious merit. Not because of your right theology or your past faith, your faith up until now. You see, the nature of our relationship with our triune God is by faith and not by sight. 
You've heard that. It's by faith and not by sight. Ongoing faith, ever-present in some measure, faith, persevering faith in him. He has given us this saving faith. In chapter 2, Paul says it's a gift, which makes us an always depending, always trusting, always relying upon God people. This relationship works because he is our always dependable, forever trustworthy, and completely reliable God. So here's the answer to an important question that you have about prayer. Why does the Bible regularly instruct believers to pray for things that we already have? Like the indwelling Holy Spirit. Why does the Bible repeatedly instruct believers to pray for things promised to us by God, things which we will unfailingly receive? Because we have these spiritual blessings by faith and not by sight. In case, in this case, walking by sight is expecting the power of God without asking for it. I've been promised the power of God, so I'm done. I'm out. It's just supposed to happen. That's sight, which results in disappointing feebleness when you need power. But asking God in prayer to strengthen you with his resurrection power, by the ever more real presence of Christ in your inner being, is to yield to the functional centrality of Christ in all things, to let him actually function. I'm trusting in you. I'm asking you. I'll receive from you. Ever increasingly so. That's Paul's prayer. Paul's second request is a request for comprehension. It begins midway in verse 17. That God may grant that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Well, how will that happen? Well, remember that these three requests are all related and they are not prayers for a one-time thing. Paul's not praying for a one-time thing. Read the verbs as participles. Put an I-N-G on them. These are gifts of God's grace being continually lavished upon us. They build upon one another in a progression. He's stacking them. With Christ dwelling in us by faith, we are being rooted and grounded in his love. And God's love should be no surprise to us by now. It's not a hidden thing. It's open and obvious and it's apparent in our lives. By God's electing love, he chose us in Christ. We're back in chapter 1. In love, he adopted us as sons and daughters in Christ. We're rooted in the love of Christ because he first loved us. We're grounded in the love of God from which nothing can separate us. That love. Paul often refers to believers as the beloved. Those who are loved by God. We're loved by God. I hope you have been much loved by the people in your life. But whether you have or have not, you have not been loved as God has loved you. And Paul is praying that we who are loved by God would now comprehend that love. 
We need to see it. Recognize it. Acknowledge it. And grow in it. He's praying that as a result of Christ's indwelling and strengthening, we would grow the spiritual capacity to understand the love of Christ. And to understand it in two ways. The first way is to grasp the love of Christ in our minds, to understand his love for us. And Paul uses a metaphor to teach us the vast dimension of Christ's love for his church. Love can't actually be measured with a ruler or a tape measure. It's not that kind of a thing. But Paul uses this metaphor in that way to help us understand the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. He's pointing to the magnitude of Christ's love for us. So if you took a ship out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and looked in every direction, you would be surveying its breadth. (laughs) Water, water everywhere. The breadth of Christ's love is immeasurable like that. If we ran as fast as we could toward the length of Christ's love, then jumped in a race car and raced and then jumped in a jet and flew and then blasted off in a rocket ship in the direction of Christ's love, we would never reach its complete length. We can't measure the height or the depth of Christ's love for us, so so we write and sing songs about it. What heights of love. What depths of peace. When fears are still, when striving cease. Here in the love of Christ, I'll stand. We need the spiritual strength of Christ in us to comprehend this kind of love. This kind of love. Love that is patient and kind. Love that does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude. Love that does no, not insist on its own way, that is not irritable or resentful. Love that does, not re, or that does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That love never ends. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul wants us to comprehend love like that, to grow in our understanding of the love of Christ. The second way Paul wants us to comprehend the love of Christ is experientially. More than knowing about the love of Christ, we're to actually know Christ's love by experiencing his love. And Paul uses a paradox, not a metaphor this time, but a paradox to try to get at this. He prays that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's a paradox. That's that's seemingly contradictory. How can we know what is beyond mere knowledge? By experiencing it. By recognizing that we are actually loved by Christ. Paul's not pushing us into some kind of mysticism beyond the bounds of the gospel. He's praying that by the power of God, we would grow in our experience of the love of Christ for us. Christ hasn't loved us in theory only. He has loved us in practice. It's real love. Paul tells the Galatians of his experience of Christ's love, saying, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. 
You see, the, the apostle doesn't just have words to teach by. He has a standard of experience to reveal to us. We should understand the love of God. We should experience the love of Christ in this way. Peter writes with insights into the church's experience of Christ's love, saying, though you do not see him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Yes. We're loved by Christ in a way that that we love him back. But we need to notice something critical in Paul's petition in our experiencing love in this way and knowing and comprehending love in this way. He prays that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints the love of Christ. With all the saints. There is a context in which this profound indwelling and comprehending takes place. Comprehending the love of Christ comes to the church as we pursue it together, not apart. Which makes perfect sense since Paul has been emphasizing our oneness in the church, whether Jew or Gentile, all along. We are together fellow heirs, together partakers of the same promise, and together members of the same body. This is not a matter of private experience, but in fellowship with one another. Together we are the one new man in Christ who is himself our peace. God has given Christ to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's God's plan to fill us, the church, with Christ. And so that's exactly what Paul prays for. His third request is a request for fullness. He prays that God would grant you that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the climax of all three requests. We need the power of Christ's indwelling in the center of our being, and we need the power of God to comprehend the love with which Christ has loved us so that we would be filled with all of the fullness of God. That we would have this fullness of the one who fills. This is Paul's way of praying for the church to become spiritually mature. That we would be filled with the fullness of God. He's praying for us to become all God wants us to be. He might say it that way. Or or to be measured complete in Christ. He might say it that way. He's going to put feet to this prayer later in chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. And you can hear it. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is a good place for us to just reflect for a moment. To be honest with ourselves and realistic about the condition of our believing hearts. There is still deep within us a kingdom of self that is fighting for independence from, believe it or not, the love of God. It's the seat of those temptations that you experience to not depend on God. To not allow Jesus' functional control of your mind and of your will. 
to maintain a measured distance between you and God. You feel safer that way. To say, this close and no closer. All of that is an expression of Christian immaturity. In our own little kingdom of self, we would use all the power that we would pray for to be filled with ourselves. Isn't that true? That's why it takes nothing less than the power of God to comprehend the love of Christ. Our deep and pathetic self-centeredness is precisely the reason why Paul prays for the power of God to transform us. So that Christ would have functional lordship in our lives. Real lordship in our lives. You see, to have Christ and to know this love and to become like him, understanding that this happens incrementally, is glorious. It's a glorious thing to be clay in the potter's hand. And therefore, surely it is a gift from the riches of God's glory. Verse 16. A quick, uh, just a little quick word study here on the word glory. Does, Does glory sometimes seem vague to you? There's probably a reason for that. It's a very useful word, and it's a much-used word, and it can be used in, in many and various ways, and it often is. So this, this word glory, the Hebrew word is kavod, and it's translated differently based on its context. Kavod may be translated as something that's heavy. That's probably the root of its understanding. Or as something that you would boast in. Or as something that others would boast about. See, something, it's, something that has glory like that is, is a weighty thing. It's not a light thing, it's a weighty thing. Which you can see, the kinds of things that you would want to boast about. The kinds of things you would look at and give praise to would be weighty things. Substantial things, significant things. Meaningful things are weighty. So it's one thing, you know, to to praise the New England Patriots on a win. But it's another thing entirely to praise God for saving sinners. That's weighty. That's of consequence. That's of significance. And so, you might boast so loud about the Patriots, but you can really boast. You can really boast in God. Because He's glorious. In the New Testament, doxa is the word. You you can kind of hear the word doxology. Our word doxology come from that. Glory giving. We want to do glory giving. We want to praise God. Praise God. Remember the the song doxology we sing, from whom all blessings flow? Praise Him above all creatures. Praise Him below. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's glory giving. That's doxology. And so we praise God for His praiseworthiness. He is worthy because He is able. 
And so Paul, still in prayer, breaks out in praise and glory giving to God. Which is a perfect inclusio for chapters 1 through 3. What does that mean? It means that, remember the very beginning of his teaching in verse 3? He said, let us bless or praise God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And now, here at the end, that is the end of chapter 3, Paul does exactly that. He breaks out in praise and glory giving to God. He breaks out into doxology in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So Paul Paul says kind of two things in these verses, to him who is able and to him be the glory. Paul praises God for the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. And we've heard that before, haven't we? He he prayed that we might come to know that in his earlier prayer at the end of chapter 1. Paul is absolutely convinced that God is able to grant every single aspect of his prayer for the church. After all, he has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Paul is teaching us about the resurrection power of God that is at work in us. And he's telling us Ask for it. Ask for it. That by it, Christ will increasingly dwell within us and we will increasingly comprehend his love for us, even experiencing it in our daily lives in the form of resurrection power. Ask for it. Paul is incentivizing us to pray great prayers, to ask great things of God, far greater than many of our little prayers. And we will see the power of God at work in us to a far greater extent than we do now if we would pray. We could see sinners made alive in Christ. We could see the people who seem the farthest from God be brought near to God in Christ. Only God can do such great things. And he calls us to ask him to do them. God is able, and to God be the glory. Where? To him be the glory where? In Christ Jesus and in the church. Didn't expect that. Seriously, the church? Yeah. Can you believe that? To him be the glory and the church. You know, in many ways, we have allowed the unbelieving world around us, those who actually follow the prince of the power of the air, to make us feel embarrassed, if not shameful, about the church. Haven't we? In contrast... Jesus gave his life to make sinners alive and to bring them near into one body, his body, the church. God is growing the church 
into a holy temple, His dwelling place by His Spirit. God's plan is for His church to display the manifold wisdom, His manifold wisdom to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He's not ashamed to let them see that come from the church. God sees us as His treasured possession, as His own glorious inheritance. He's filling His church with the fullness of Himself. Hallelujah. And we need to see the church by faith as God sees the church. Our purpose is to reflect His glory throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So let me ask you, when was the last time you prayed the way Paul prayed? Paul is praying for the church and the individual members thereof. And he's praying according to God's great plan and purpose in Christ. It may have been a mystery to us before, but Paul's made it known to us now. God has a high view of the church. Why should we pray for things we already have, at least in part, and things that have already been promised to us that we will one day surely receive? Because we have been called to live in new realities in Christ by faith. He has called us to be holy and blameless. To be God's treasured possession. His glorious inheritance. And so we need to pray for power. We need to pray for Christ to move in our hearts where we make decisions, where we set our affections. He called us to be united at peace and loving one another. To display the manifold wisdom of God to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Us. So we need to pray that we might comprehend such things. That we might comprehend the love that's been placed within us. That we might comprehend the peace and prosperity that we have in our souls with God. Through Christ's blood. Our new reality is to be gospel witnesses and gospel proclaimers. So that the dead will be made alive and that the far off would be brought near. We need to pray by faith for the things Paul has revealed to be true in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians. In chapter 2, in chapter 1, we were sealed by the Holy Spirit when we heard the gospel. That means the gospel needs to be proclaimed. In chapter 2, we were made alive by faith in the gospel. That means the gospel needs to be proclaimed. In chapter 3, we see Paul's God-given gospel ministry, which is now the responsibility of the church, the body of Christ, to carry forward. He told us this in his commission in Matthew chapter 28. The risen Christ came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we need to pray for the church to be filled with all of the fullness of God. 
It's his plan for us. And the glories of his plan to us are there for the asking in prayer. Lastly, we have been purposed by God to live to the praise of his glory. We have been purposed by God to live to the praise of his glory. It's a different life than the one we are often living, you and me. The life of living to the praise of God's glory. Not a life lived merely with the help from the riches of God's glory, but a life dedicated, wholly given over, purposed for the praise of His glory. We're to live lives rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, filled by His Spirit to God's glory. We're to comprehend the weighty things, the spiritual things, the meaningful things, the consequential and eternal things of God. We're to live to holy and blameless lives with Christ at the center of all that we think and do. We're to live praying lives, asking God to bring about His great plan and purpose to unite all things in Christ. And we are to boast in Christ and proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ to all people. Praise God. Praise God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He answers prayer according to the riches of His glory. He is able and He is worthy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us power, even now, that we might know Christ. Father, give us power that we might comprehend His love. Strengthen us that we would yield to His Lordship. Strengthen us that we would yield all things except to live to the praise of your glory. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.